0: Hey, in Context friends, we need your help. Between now and March 30th, we have a survey that is out and we need you to complete it. We want your feedback. We want to know why you listen to Michael Easley in Context, what you want to hear more of, less of, and anything else you want to tell us to help guide us in the future of Michael Easley in Context. So right now, if you go to michaelincontext.com slash survey, you will be entered to win a package, including a $50 Amazon gift card, Ken Boa's handbook to prayer, and Michael's book on prayer interludes. Again, your feedback is so valuable to us, and we would love it if you took our survey from now until March 30th at michaelincontext.com survey. Over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books. All of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books. The Big Book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in context
1: we are looking at the book of galatians the small letter that paul wrote the church of galatia and i want to begin by asking a question how do you know if a person is saved and there is a watershed of what we believe and how we behave fair enough what you believe and how you behave so we explain that to trust Christ and Christ alone is to believe that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he came back from the dead, he overcame death, and any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are given a free gift called eternal life. The person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, indwells the believer. At the moment, he or she trusts Christ. That's belief. That's belief. What about behavior? How shall we then live? What do we do? And here's a dangerous question can it be measured? From the Reformation history, from Catholicism in its early years when it was the only church, to in Luther and Melanchthon and Zwingli and Calvin, quote, reformed, do not forget. They were trying to reform the church. They weren't trying to start a Protestant reformation and begin a Protestant system. They were trying to reform the one true church. They were trying to fix what was wrong. They were correcting errors. I'm astonished how many reformers don't understand reformed people were, the men were priests. They were Catholic priests who were trying to quote fix the errors of what The church had gotten into. So I don't think it was ever Luther or Melanchthon or Zwingli or Calvin's intent to extricate entirely from the Catholic church. They were trying to fix the church for its indulgences and other things that were going on. All that aside, how do we behave? What do we believe and how do we behave? If you're old enough to remember the Politically incorrect, I even debated whether I should say it today. I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do. Some of you are old enough to know what that meant. And that was the idea that you separated yourself from people who had different behaviors. Trans, transport ourselves to today, and of course it's drinking will always be a behavioral question Uh, LGBTQAI will be a behavioral question. Uh, How many of you old enough to remember when movies had ratings on them? And you didn't go to a movie that had a certain rating. I grew up Roman Catholic, and we got this little digest every Sunday that came. And uh, everything C meant condemned. It was condemned by the church. You couldn't go see it. You only go see A and B movies. We didn't see a lot of movies. Weren't many A and B movies out there in those days. Today, everything would be C condemned. Uh, But but we had these rating systems. And now I'm struck when I confess that I watch a Netflix series and it says, warning, smoking. For real? (laughs) They're going to rate a series because people on the series smoke a cigarette? I mean, it's just sort of interesting. Sorry. Behavior. As a Christian... What behaviors are acceptable? Let's say we generally agree on belief. He lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the dead, he paid for your sin and mine in my place, on my behalf instead of me. In your place, on your behalf instead of you. He died for your sins. He overcomes death if you put your trust in Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You cannot do for yourself. He gives you a free gift called eternal life. This is the core message of the gospel. The question becomes, how do we behave? And can you measure it? This is precisely what Paul is going to be addressing in the book of Galatians to the folks in Galatia. Uh, I would like to think of it also in this concept you've heard me talk about many times, legalism, liberty, licentiousness. That legalism is a system of do's and don'ts. Liberty is somehow this, I hate the word balance, but this mature footing as a believer that I choose not to do certain things, I have freedom to do certain things, licentiousness to do whatever I want. Let's put it in more common vocabulary. Uh, As a legalist, you're going to have do's and don'ts. You don't do this. You don't drink, perhaps. You don't go to movies, perhaps. You certainly don't uh, run around. You don't do this. Uh, the, the, the licentious person would say, well, you know, I'm LGBTQAI, fill in the blank. I identify as such and such. I love, I love Jesus. I love people. I'm not mad. I'm uh, angry. This is how I was made. The nomenclature, the language around this argument has overtaken our country. I'm not mad, I'm not screaming and yelling, I'm not saying they're all going to hell in a handbasket. This is the place in which you live. Perhaps most in this room have family members or friends who are in this LGBTQA conversation where, well, as you know, someone would say to me, you oh, know, Michael, they love, they're loving, they're made that way, why do you, why do you say these things? Legalism is a system of do's and don'ts to somehow measure or quantify your faith. Licentiousness, license, is to do whatever I want to do under the guise of God loves me, He forgives me, He paid for my sins. Once saved, always saved. I can't lose my salvation so I can live the way I want. Nothing new under the sun it's heightened at different times as we look at the decades, it's, it's more important at different times. Uh, when you go to Israel, because it is God's will, uh, you will see things. When you go to Greece and Turkey you'll be blown away. When you, if you ever go to Egypt, which may not be an easy trek anymore, you'll, the, the pornography that was present in the Greco-Roman architecture and in Egypt is um, for the technology and time, it was just like pornography today. wasn't as easily accessible as a tablet or a phone, but it was there. Nothing new under the sun. So how does a person who believes a certain thing behave? And can we measure what a person believes to know whether or not they are a believer in Jesus Christ. Now let me say this as sort of a preemptive strike. We're all consistently inconsistent in our Christianity. We're all consistently inconsistent in our Christianity. Most of you in this room know that. But lest a person should think, you know, well this is how you live the Christian life like me it, it always sets me on my heels when Paul says, uh, "Be an exam- I, I'm an example for you to, to follow. I go, whoa, would I ever say that? I'm an example for you to follow. Do as I do. Do as I say. That's an apostolic statement. Uh, a pastor that said that would freak me out. Do as I do. do live as I live. That's a dangerous... I, we're all consistently inconsistent. We have compartments where we do things that we know are wrong and we finesse them and we sanctify them and we say, I know the Lord will forgive me. Or maybe they're so called gray or doubtful issues and we dabble in those. But we're adults, right? We're friends. Can you acknowledge that you're consistently inconsistent? There are things that we do in our lives that are on the edge. Where then do we have the position? I'm not going to use the word right to say, this is how you are supposed to live. But at the same time I can't sanction sin. That was the tension that the men and women in the churches in Galatia were dealing with. When, I don't know if you have any experiences like this, when I was in college. Uh, I was growing in my faith. I had some really incredibly wonderful Christian couples that were very charismatic. I had some other friends that weren't. And I was a young college student and I'm, you know, I'm like the Larson cartoon with the guy in the boat, and the caption says, "How does a fisherman lose his mind?" Fisher cut bait, Fisher cut bait, Fisher cut bait. Well, that was me. I, do I know what these people believe? They're so sincere, and they talk about Jesus unlike anybody I've ever known. And my sort of Bible church friends were kind of stodgy and stuffy, and you know, they were navigators. They were, you know. <laughs> kind of wound a little tight they're kind of discipline oriented all look like they're going to the military you know i mean there's sort of a stereotypical thing going on and i'm a young christian trying to understand you've been there in your own journey there's something appealing about a person who really loves christ passionately and speaks of it easily Compared to a person that, yeah, they're wound kind of tight, they're probably a BSF or a preceptor or give me a Bible study or a navigator, and you know, the, the clothes and haircut and the worn out Bible prove it. So we've got this present reality that's an ancient problem. Um, one of the questions that helps me in this tension, picture cut bait, you know, am I, am I a person that you do these things or you do whatever, is, as an individual Christian, do I have a conscious sensitivity to my own sin? Am I aware when I'm angry? And I'm a, am I aware when I'm gossiping? Am I aware when I'm saying things that's sort of sliding to the edge? Maybe because it's funny, maybe because it's whatever. And I think that awareness don't take this too far, is some type of marker, I hate the word evidence, but it's some type of marker that says the Holy Spirit's working in you, Michael. You've heard me say many times, the Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience just makes me guilty. And I'm really skilled at avoiding a guilty conscience. But the Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. Because He's in the business of helping us find forgiveness and recalibrate our relationship with Christ? Are you teachable? Are you growing? Are you learning? Those to me are indices of a person who's following Christ and trying to live faithfully as opposed to a system of do's and don'ts. Or I can do whatever I want because I'm a Christian. Well let's take a look at the book of Galatians. Let me go to our friends. Bruce Wilkinson and Ken Boa and the book we have talked about many many times uh, talk through the Bible the epistle to galatians has been called the charter of christian liberty it is paul's manifesto on justification by faith and the liberty it produces paul confronts people who are willing to give up the priceless liberty they possess in christ certain Jewish legalists are influencing the believers in Galatia to trade their freedom in Christ for bondage to the law. Paul writes to refute their false gospel of works and to demonstrate the superiority of justification by faith. As they do so well, they put an awful lot in a few words. It's one of those paragraphs you need to park on for a moment. But the last line to demonstrate the superiority of justification by faith is is what I want you to keep in your mind. Um, Andrew Knowles writes, Paul is angry and frustrated. The gospel in Galatia has been attacked and undermined by a damaging lie. And it is also suggested that Paul himself is not a true apostle. Uh, The churches in Galatia, the home groups perhaps, we don't know a lot about Galatia. It's a, a little bit, the backstory is a little complex. But they were, they certainly included Jews, but they were predominantly Gentile believers. And so Gentile believers have come to faith, they believed in the gospel, but they've got some baggage from how they were before they knew Christ. And this undoubtedly it bubbled to the top as part of what Paul is addressing. So you've got some strict Jews coming along and the question that they are presenting, which is no different than I began, how Jewish do you have to be before you're a Christian? How Jewish do you have to be before you're a Christian? That may seem like a silly question. That's what the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 was all about because Paul and Barnabas were seeing all these Gentiles come to faith, word goes back to the mother church in Jerusalem, they're ticked off because wait, 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 they're not living the way Jews lived before they came to Christ. And in no small summary, the Jerusalem council is how Jewish do you have to be to be a Christian? That's truly what it's about. Now, if you've never heard of Judaism. If you don't know about Abraham and Moses and the law and the David and the monarch and the David covenants and the, 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 uh, the, the broken monarchy, the division between the north and south kingdoms, Israel and, and Judah. If you don't know this history how much of that do you have to know before you can walk the aisle of pray prayer and say you're a Christian? That becomes a huge issue in Acts chapter 15. This is written in that section of what's going on in the book of Acts as the gospel is spreading. Well, these strict Jews have introduced these allegations, and this is in no small reason Paul is writing them. He's frustrated, he's angry, and he's going to call them foolish Galatians, he's going to upbraid them, but tied into this is an interesting um, apologetic Because he's the elder statesman, Apostle Paul, but he's also gentle. Um, Some of us might have had overbearing parents, or uh, how many was Dad strict and Mom was a lightweight? How many the other way around? Dad was a mom was a pushover or whatever, you know. Uh, And we have these pictures, right, of parents, the way they work. And I think of the Apostle Paul being a marriage of those two. He was the authoritarian when he needed to be, but he was also very maternal in his language. He was tender. He cared about them. He loved them. So while he's angry and frustrated, and he doesn't hold back, in the end, he loves them. Now, some of us had some pretty difficult parenting, and we could talk about that for hours. But do you have an experience in your mind where your mother, father was just—they were, you know, cleaning your clock? about something you did and you knew they were right and when they were done you still knew they loved you. Lots of them. Lots of them. And that I think is a good way to think about the Apostle Paul. How Jewish do you have to be before you can become a Christian? Well Uh, Keep in mind also, and Tom Constable talks about, don't just focus on Paul's denunciations, focus on his enunciations. Not only what he says don't do, but what he says to do. Um, Paul begins with a very brief Christology. The first five verses of Galatians chapter 1 are about Christ, and then he goes off. Compared to Corinthians, where almost the entire first chapter is Christology. If you look at his letters, he he begins with a Christological overview pertinent to the group he's writing each time, but in this case there's just five verses. So it's like, okay, let's get the Christology out of the way. i got to get the business here. i got to tell them what they're doing right and wrong and address them. The letter obviously is shorter, so the landscape and the runway is a little different. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, after the Christology, he writes, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel." I'm amazed you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Don't want to strain gnats here, but he's talking about the Father, Him, who gave you the grace to believe in Christ. You're not just deserting Christ, you're deserting God the Father who gave you the grace to believe in Jesus Christ. And so quickly you've not thought through it. If there was ever an indictment for the Western church maybe the global church for Jesus Christ today is we do not think. We do not think. Unfortunately your public education is no longer teaching critical thinking they're indoctrinating. And it takes a good parent to understand how to ask questions, how to help your child learn to think critically. Your objective is not to tell them what to believe. That's a fool's errand as a parent or an educator. Your objective is to help them think critically, stand on their own two feet. What do you believe about this? This is what the Bible says. This is what the world says. You need to make a decision. you got to stand on your own two feet. Thinking critically is so important when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's astonished they've deserted him, and more interestingly, is they've not only deserted him, they've gone to legalism. Corinth deserted Christ and went to licentiousness. Galatia is deserting Christ and going to legalism, which when I say these books broad stroke, it blows my mind how well it all fits together. <laughs> It all fits together so magnificently if we just give it a little time. Tom Constable, uh, Dr. Constable, and again, if you're new or newer, I've mentioned this to our church many, many times, but Tom Constable's notes are available free online. Just put Constable and Bible notes, and you'll find them on a couple of locations. And they are a study Bible on steroids. And so you can download all of his notes on, the, on Galatians, on, on every book of the Bible, And you can set your study Bible aside and download Dr. Constable's notes and you'll have a field day. And Constable summarizes this in a way that I could not improve on. Galatians is not only a proclamation of liberty, it is a protest against legalism. Legalism is both a belief and a practice. As a belief, legalism is the conviction that we make ourselves acceptable to God by keeping rules. Often the rules in view are those imposed by man, not those required by God. This is so important to understand. Legalists rarely are chaptering versing you. They're telling you you can't do X. You can't drink. You can't do Y. You can't. That's wrong. A Christian doesn't do those things. All right. He continues, however, misapplying biblical laws is also a form of legalism. As a practice, legalism is keeping the rules with a view to gaining merit with God. In a larger sense, legalism is a belief that we can make ourselves acceptable to God by our good works. Of course, the only thing that makes us acceptable to God is our trust in Christ's good works. I would amend this to say the only thing that makes us acceptable is Christ's work. You see the difference? It's not my trusting in Christ's work; that's positional. The only thing that makes it acceptable is what He did. He lived, He died, He buried, He overcame the grave, He offered. But it's Christ's work. I remember I was a first semester student in the seminary, and I went to talk to a, a lovely man, Bob Solstrom, with the Lord. And um, he, he had this little modest office with a little round table, and he had a Bible always open. And you would go in to see Bob. Remember Bob Sahlstrom? You go in to see Bob, and he had this, this silver hair. And you go see him, and he was a gentleman's gentleman. He looked just you know godly. And uh, and he he wouldn't talk to you about what you wanted to talk to. He'd say he'd say Michael, read this, and he'd hand me what he had just read that morning. And then he would he would smooth the pages with his hand, and he would talk about the Bible and the Word of God. I'll never forget he asked me, he goes, what are you trusting in to get you to heaven? What are you trusting in to get you to heaven? And for once I had the right answer. I said what Christ did and what he said. He goes, right, not what you've done, not what you do. This is why the gospel is so hard for people. Because people have this set of scales in their head, when you do bad you got to do good. Now of course there's no differential, they don't even know what bad means anymore. But you know people that live in in sin, when they're alone and they're quiet and they're sad and they're miserable, they know they're sinners. Sure they might say they're fine, I don't think the image of God can bear that because you and I made in the image of God. And we know right from wrong. We know good from evil. We can sear it, our conscience, we can live in sin and make the callous hard. But when you're alone and lonely and people have disappointed you and you are in a bad spot, that question will enter your heart and mind. Who am I? What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? Well, he continues in this vain. We are. He says uh, he satisfied God's demand for us. We are saved by good works, but it is Christ's good works, not ours. I really like what he said. I want to give one amendment to it. Legalism is the most insidious is most insidious when we lay man-made rules upon other believers and judge them by our standards. If I can say this kindly, not trying to be funny. If you want to be a legalist, God bless you. Don't export it. Don't put your do's and don'ts on other Christians. This is the most insidious part of legalism that Constable did not write about in that one section. And I think this is where some of us who've come out of legalist backgrounds, where the hair on the back of your neck stands up when you hear these do's and don'ts. Good Christians, don't do this. Good Christians, do this. And the hair on the back of my neck just goes, are you kidding me? Are you going to impose your personal legalistic idiosyncrasies on me? Now, we're friends, right? I'm not mad at you. You ever do this when you see other Christians living a certain way that you don't agree with? I shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't live that way. I mean, after all. I never do that, of course. (laughs) Namely, Christians can't do X. And a person can't be a Christian if he or she does X or Y. It's a very precarious and dangerous place to be. Paul is remarkable and gentle as this apologist. In chapter 1, he's going to speak about the church uh, how he persecuted the church of God, how he went after Christians. It's not improper to say Paul was an accomplice, and some believe Paul also murdered individuals himself before he comes to Christ. He's trying to destroy, quote, the church of God, verse one, chapter 1, verse 15, but God changed him. Don't miss this. Paul has changed. In the debate over grace and free grace and easy grace and easy believism to the other side of proofs of faith and test of law and test of faith that we've been arguing for decades, I find it striking that Paul writes about his change. I don't know how to measure it. I don't know how to give you a guide to say these things because all of a sudden I'm a legalist. I do believe that if I don't have a conscience, if I can live in sin without shame and guilt, if I can ignore and move away and become apathetic, there's no consequence, that's a danger zone. Paul is speaking of his change. In fact, he's going to chronicle his change. We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 briefly last week. All the things he went through, he was a changed man. If the gospel of Jesus Christ has not and is not changing you, something's wrong. Only two options. Either you haven't truly embraced the and work of Jesus Christ or you need growing and learning and improving and discipling and maturing. It, the only two decisions. You're either not in the family of God or you need to grow in the family of God. It's not that hard. We make it hard. Galatians chapter 1 verses 23 and 4, but only they kept learning he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Some of you have seen some of the life change from the Middle East, whether through missionary work or even military work where men and women share their faith, precarious and dangerous to do so, and a person from that culture comes to Christ and there is a change. The one who persecuted is now part of it. I've met some of these men and women. Years ago when Cindy and I were in the Washington, D.C. area, we had a four-star admiral who uh, was in the command of a ship in in a Middle Eastern area, and he had about a dozen of these Middle Easterners in his cabin, in his ship. He boat them in for a Bible study every week. Who does this stuff? He's with the Lord now, but even until his 70s he stayed in contact with some of them in the Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia area. Enemies not just of America. Enemies not just of the military power in America. Enemies of Christ, who he shared the love of Christ with, who became what we call born-again believers in Jesus Christ that he remained friends with until he died. They were once persecuting and now they're at peace with that's how Paul are you do you want to go to a meeting where Paul's preaching when you've heard of his reputation? I'd want to wait. It's sort of like, are you gonna be first in line to get one of the, the one of the vaccines? You're gonna know, wait a while. I had a medical friend of mine say, I'm gonna wait till about a half a million people had it and see how they fare. See how they fare. And then maybe I'll entertain having it. We're suspicious people. Paul was persecuting and killing Christians, and now he's preaching the gospel of Christ. Talk about a life change. Chapter 2 recounts his 14 years in Jerusalem, which is, oh, by the way, it's an interesting apologetic. I spent 14 years in seminary to get this degree. You better listen to me. Oh, oh, by the way, I was 14 years with Barnabas and Titus. After I came to Christ I was doing the things I'm telling you about. It's an, oh, by the way, credential. He didn't lead with it. And the liberty of the gospel was challenging the legalism of Galatia. This legalism versus grace challenge is explained in chapter 2 verse 11 and following, but I want to jump to chapter 2, verse 20 because it's one of these landmark, benchmark verses in my life and I suspect in several of your lives this has been a verse that's been very helpful and important to you. In fact, why don't you read with me? I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Repetition is good. One more time. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me." Uh, I I never like when someone says this is the key verse or the most important verse because they're all important. But this one jumped off the page. I was a freshman in college, living by myself. I read this verse. It was like a neon light jumped off my Bible. Her, Her music in the background. I mean, this thing just sunk in. And I called some of my Christian friends. There were no cell phones in those days. There were real phones. And I called and I said, have you ever read Galatians 2.20? And there, you know, I'm, a, I'm this I'm fanatic. They, you know, nothing's changed. And so we're talking about. I went to my pastor's local church in Nacogdoches. And said, Have you ever seen Galatians two twenty? I mean, this this changed me. Because this explains the tension of living in the flesh with which we're still bound and chained, but we live by faith. I think this is perhaps the the. Readers digest Cliff Notes to what sanctification means. If you could if you can meditate on this, this is an easy one to memorize, too, by the way. There's probably some music someone's put to it. You should memorize this passage. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I don't do whatever I want to do, I don't follow a set of rules and regulations. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. The focus is so important. If you focus on do's and don'ts, God help you. If you focus on doing whatever you want, God help you. If you focus on living how Christ wants you to live, He will help you. You will navigate away and it will make sense. It's not that hard. Our salvation is dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ, not on ourselves. Galatians 3 is a beautiful theology And uh, just to give you a snapshot of it, 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 in three broad strokes, it's going to hammer a simple point. Galatians chapter 3, the Holy Spirit is given by faith, not works. The Abraham's covenant, Abraham was justified by faith, not work. I remind you, he's speaking of the Jews and the law. And the justification is by faith, not by works. Three different cadences he's explaining. So we go back to Holy Spirit. You didn't get in by working. Abraham's promises weren't given by working. And justification isn't given by working. All of these are appropriated, careful word, we embrace them, we get them by faith, not by what we do. And this was a seminal argument. Again, for the Galatian believer, do I go back to the law, to doing the law, doing the right things, not doing the wrong things, to assure myself I'm a Christian? Or do I live however I want because I have liberty and I take that liberty to license? No. Paul's reminding them how did the Holy Spirit come? By faith. How was Abraham justified? By faith. How was justification occurred? By faith. Not our works. Um, I refer so often to the Abrahamic covenant, not just because it's one of my pet peeves, it's one of the Scripture's keystones. And Paul the Apostle is going back to it right here. When I moved to Chicago uh, a few years back, 2005 I think was the year, um, I was summonsed by the Archbishop of the Chicago Diocese, Cardinal George. Some of you who have a Chicago background might remember him. He was in the news quite a bit um, because of priests and scandals in those days. But... um, it was the invitation to come talk to him, but uh, being raised Catholic, those of you who don't know me, it was like being summoned. And I remember taking a cab, because it was quite a, a distance from the Institute, to go see uh, Cardinal George. And um, it was a very cold, crisp Chicago morning. What else is new? And uh, I'm walking uh, by this incredible complex and as I walked, I went from, uh, I think I was uh, 40-something when I went there, I forget. Uh, I, I, I i started shrinking. And before I opened the door, I was a 13-year-old 8th grade boy. And I opened the door and the smell, any of you raised Catholic? The smell of the Catholic Church came back to my olfactory hallucinations. And I was, I was in a Catholic building and I could smell the beeswax on the candles and the same color of paint on the walls I grew up with, the same wooden oak chairs in the hallway, the same nuns and people, lay people working there. I mean, I was 13 years old, eighth grade boy in trouble. That's how I felt. And so I went and finally found his assistant and she told me to sit in a chair. And I promise you, I felt like I was in eighth grade going to see the principal and I was in trouble. The same crucifixes on the wall. I'm, they get them from one place, Sacco Brothers, and they're all the same across the world. And so I'm, it's, I'm like, I'm like sweating. So I go in, and whatever your frame of reference is, whether it's, um, you know, Lord of the Rings, or you know, uh, anyway, one of these movies where you go see the master and he's got this library. I go into this guy's office, and it's, I mean, it's you couldn't afford to build the thing. And the books were beautifully, probably first edition, leather-bound, ancient books, all in this office. I sit behind this massive desk. Now, I'm 6'3". I'm not a small guy. He's a little smaller than me, but the chair was intentionally low. So now I really feel like an eighth-grade kid. And we had this nice little chat, little pleasantries back and forth. He says to me after a few minutes, uh, I see you were raised Catholic. So he'd done homework on me. And I said, yeah. Tell me about that. So I told them, my mom and dad, who went to Mass every day for 62 years of marriage, I told them about going to parochial schools, etc. And I told them about, because every Catholic boy who goes to parochial schools entertains the priesthood. I mean, you do. You You don't want to do it, but you do. I mean, women are important to me. I'm sorry. I wanted to be married, not a priest. And so that was a (laughs) non-starter. But uh, you entertain it for a while. And um, so I tell them my story. And he's nonplussed. He's just staring at me. And so um, he wasn't mad, but he said, how'd you end up at Moody? And so I told him that story. Now understand juxtaposition, Moody would be the biggest Protestant footprint in downtown Chicago juxtaposed to the Catholic diocese. Catholics being a little bit older. The properties were massive, the buildings were old, 1900s. He had a lot nicer house than I did, by the way. Uh, but nevertheless, these are sort of the vestiges of these two, illustratively Protestant v. Catholic. So we're chatting away, and um, he asked me about my change, how I left the Catholic Church, and so I told him. He, he was a little short, he was a little critical kind of cocked his head in disapproval a few times. And um, so I asked him a question. I said, Cardinal, what came first, the promise of the law? And he looked at me. And he didn't know what I was asking. I said, what came first, the promise of God or the law of God? And he goes, what difference does that make? And I said, well, Abraham received the promises of God before the laws in play. And St. Paul the Apostle is, talks about the promises came before the law. And he just looked at me like I was from Mars. And um, so I explained that I understood I was justified by faith, not by works. I understood that it was belief in Christ and Christ alone not attending the obligations of the Catholic Church to save me. I understood that my works have no part in my salvation. They do have a role in my life and my sanctification, but my works do not prove or ensure or get me a better foothold in heaven. At this point, of course, we were at odds. And um, it was not a long meeting. It felt long. And I walked outside, and as I walked out of the labyrinth of that massive building and went outside. It was probably 35 degrees and the sun was sort of shining and it was still very cool and crisp. But I decided to walk back, even though it was quite a walk. I needed to think a little bit. Not about him. And it was a fascinating reflection. And Galatians 3 is what I thought about. I'm justified not by works. Abraham wasn't justified by works justification is not by works it's by the work of the Holy Spirit it's by the work of God in your life it's I've been crucified with Christ and no longer live but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me and I went from an 8th grade boy in a cassock and a surplus to a grown man again as I walked back to my office You see, you can never be good enough. And that's the deception of any religious system. And I'm not saying all Catholics are in that category. Don't say that. I didn't say that. But if you're in a religious denomination and in a system and you don't differentiate, there's a problem. It's not what you do, it's what he's done. And this is the argument of Galatians. Chapter 4, he's going to move into the fact that believers are free from the works of the law. Time is upon me. Let me go to chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I love this verse. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. He didn't set you free to be back enslaved to do's and don'ts. Now what happens though? If we take those do's and don'ts too far, we're legalists. If we take our freedom too far, we're licentious. Does that make sense? That, that to me, you've got to keep that in mind with the book of Galatians. The letter is that you can't be better by do's and don'ts and you can't live like you want with liberty taken too far into license. Again, I don't like the word balance, but that's kind of a word our brain runs to. Um, it's really a recalibration. Now, chapter 5 lays out two passages that I want to commend you to do for your devotion this week. I want you to take chapter 5, verses 19 to 25, and verses 26 to 31, and I want you to lay them side by side on a real piece of paper if you want to do that. And let's read these two passages and let me begin framing them with, the deeds of the flesh are evident, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. These two stanzas frame this section, and I think most Christians have never... You might know the fruit, or as incorrectly pronounced, the fruits of the Spirit. You might know the list. You might have grown up with a salty tape or something like that. But I don't know that you put these side by side. Now let me read these two passages. Paul is saying, look, if you're going to talk about Judaism and do's and don'ts, this is what the deeds of the flesh look like. If you're going to talk about liberty in the spirit, this is what that looks like. Let me read them. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, meaning what? Common sense. Hello, obvious. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. May I pause for a second? How can a culture sanctify sexual preference and sin and self-identification and anything else as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, as long as I'm loving when you ignore the Bible? This is the deeds of the flesh. Oh, Michael, you're hateful. They're going to take you off YouTube. It might happen. It might happen. Paul the Apostle said the deeds of the flesh were evident. And he begins with immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Notice the next ones. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The deeds of the flesh are as obvious as the nose on your face. That's what he's saying. That'd be the New Living Translation. You can't miss the deeds of the flesh. No one disputes these. Yes, they do. Because the flesh is the flesh. And we're always trying to find a way to sanctify our sins. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Now this last phrase is a loaded phrase. We'll not inherit the kingdom of God. And let me just let me land that real quickly cuz I want to go on. Inheritance of the kingdom of God can be looked at as rewards or salvation. If you inherit the kingdom, you're being saved. No, if you inherit the kingdom, you're being rewarded. So some of you Bible study nerds, you know this issue. This inheritance issue is a big topic. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. I'd be happy to in a future point. But I just want to make the comment, the general comment in this overview. Paul's saying you can't miss the deeds of the flesh. Now watch what he does. But the fruit of the Spirit, the deeds of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Your English translation chooses a singular is, not are. And the word love, I'm going to suggest, is the predominant term. There are not nine fruits of the Spirit. Forgive me for dissing a company. There are not nine fruits. There's one fruit. And these other words are explanations of what the word love is. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What does love look like? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things uh, there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have, been crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, now why I think this is important to point out this fruit being singular, and if you have a reference, a, a center column reference in your Bible, it's going to take you to Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 13, because love is talked about in a singular term with an explanation. That's all it's saying. The deeds of the flesh are as obvious as the nose on your face. You know what's sin. You know what's wrong. No one needs to tell you that. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. What does that love look like? Joy, peace, patience. Make sense? Okay, we must move on. So what we're seeing in this contrast is the flesh versus the Spirit. The flesh is focused on satiating its own desires. The flesh is focused on feeding its belly. The flesh is focused on trying to satiate the insatiable. This is why pornography is such an apt illustration. If pornography or immorality or adultery satisfied that sexual desire, you would do it one time and that would be enough. The deeds of the flesh are insatiable. How many of you ate Thursday lunch and said, I will never eat again? I'm going to skip dinner. I can't put another thing in my mouth. Five o'clock, I'm kind of hungry for a snack. It's insatiable. You cannot satiate the insatiable. The deeds of the flesh are insatiable. The solution isn't saying don't do this and do this and don't do this. The solution to the situation is are you being controlled and governed by the fruit of the Spirit? It's a submission to what God says I, I don't even like the phrase that we have the freedom to obey God. It's a, it's a true phrase, but it creates a, a, a wrong idea in, our, in our, the way, common way we think, because obedience sounds bad again. No, following Christ by the Spirit is saying no to the flesh. That's the tension. To sum it up, it's the flesh versus the Spirit. To sum it up, who controls you, your flesh or your spirit? Answer? Both. Right? We're friends. There are times the flesh controls me, and there's times the Spirit controls me. Both take a submission to the thing. I've got to submit to the flesh to have another helping of X. I've got to have submission to the flesh to agree to try to satiate that desire. I've got to say yes to the Spirit and allow myself to be controlled by the Spirit of God. I have the freedom to obey. True. But I also have the joy of having the Spirit, who is love, control me. Forgive me, I'm way over, I'm way out of time, but I want to give you this one illustration. I've given it to you many times. Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit controlling us. And I often use this illustration, some of you heard it before, um, when he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And too many people hear that going, I need more of the Holy Spirit. I need to be filled up more. Some of our hymns and songs and contemporary music even talk about giving me more of you. That's really bad theology. When you you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit indwelt you, period. You got more of the Spirit than you're ever going to take advantage of because we're bound by the flesh. You are not filled capacity. The Word is really controlled by So when Paul says be full of the Spirit, don't be drunk with wine. So if if I had a glass of wine or bourbon or beer and I drank it to excess, after a while what's controlling me? The alcohol I've ingested is taking over. Don't be drunk with wine, but be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Both are internal. One is a fleshly thing that I consume that changes me. The other one is the spirit of Christ who indwells me that if I submit to him, I'm controlled by him. When you're in the temptation zone, have you ever prayed the simple prayer, Jesus Christ, will you help me by your Holy Spirit to say no to the flesh? You ever done that? When you're on the throws, whether it's porn or the affair or drinking too much or whatever it is, is is your, we all have them. We're all consistently consistent, right? We all have them. When you're pulled that way, but you said, Lord Jesus, I'm a big fat sinner. I am inclined by my flesh. I like my flesh. And by myself, I'm gonna fall into that trap. Can you help me? He told me this guy was the para club, the helper who walked alongside. Will you help me? I don't even know what that means. Will you help me? If you I mean, why do we make it so religious and seminary-esque and, you know, over the t- just ask him for help. Because the fruit of the spirit is love. Not guilt. Joy, not sadness. Peace, not consternation. I do love the salty things. We, we indoctrinated our children on them. And I remember the self-control one. The self-control is just controlling myself. Couldn't have said it better. Self-control is just controlling myself. You know what? He's hard to control sometimes. And that's why I need God's Spirit. Well, I'm over. I must stop. Galatians 6 is a whole other wonderful chapter. Bearing one another's burdens, not losing heart and doing good, on and on it goes. Let us not lose heart in doing good for such a time as this.
0: Michaelisian Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.